Hello, I'm Kirk Keating. And I'm Michelle McCarran. And, and together, together we, we are adding, adding to the equation to share with you what teaching and learning mathematics sounds like. With inspiration from our math heroes, we're echoing some important messages about teaching and learning mathematics. We want to invite you to learn alongside us in our math journey so that we can all grow as math learners. Hello, everyone. Today we chat with Alicia Burdess. Alicia has been a math teacher since 2005 and has experience as an assistant principal at an 8 to 12 high school and also as a numeracy lead teacher and instructional coach. Alicia has served as a president of the Math Council of the Alberta Teachers Association and currently sits on the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics Publishing Committee. You will likely see Alicia presenting at math conferences, collaborating with teachers online and in person. Alicia has a passion for teaching through problems and tasks and is always excited to talk about learning and loving mathematics. Thanks so much for joining us uh, today, Alicia. Um, just some, the common theme of our, our podcast here is kind of celebrating our math heroes and uh, really it's a chance for us to reflect on both the teaching and learning of mathematics, um, some th- some change we're seeing. And um, yeah, so we really want to, we really want to talk about um, our math heroes, reflect on our learning and kind of learn um, collectively. So we want to share with you, Alicia, you are one of our, our math heroes. Well, thank um, you so much. I have so many math heroes I can talk about. And and yeah, so share that with us. Who are some math heroes that are that are, you know, inspiring you now, inspired you in the past to kind of, you know, keep reflecting on that teaching and learning aspect of mathematics? Well, I have been so, so lucky. I don't really know how I got to be this lucky, but up here in Grand Prairie, Alberta, we have had the opportunity for Peter Lilliadal to run two master's programs. So I was a part of his first one back in, I might get the dates wrong, but back in 2012, 2014. And he brought in his profs from Simon Fraser University, like David Pym and Rena Zaskis and Natalie Sinclair and himself. And we had a cohort of 16 teachers who got to work with all of them, which really, I think, helped kind of, you know, set a foundation of of Grand Prairie being like a little math, math, um, I don't know, kind of wormhole or uh, our place with full of collaboration. We've been so lucky. James Tanton has been to Grand Prairie to work with our teachers. He's he's helped in my classroom. Um, and he's a big proponent of educational uh, change in mathematics as well. So between Peter and James, um, Grayson Wheatley has been up here before. So he's no longer with us, but he's another big one of my my math heroes. Um, so yeah, I'm, we're so fortunate. So I feel like we've had so many opportunities to learn from from people who are striving to to change math education and to support teachers and support students. So I feel like that's a, a big part of um, why I am where I am now and, and my passion for it as well. Um, like you're really helping us with that um, teaching through task portion of, of math education, where to find tasks, how to implement tasks, um, kind of flipping that, not at the end of the, the textbook, but let's start with that with that task, start with that rich task, so. And I that's the part that I love the most. Um, learning with Peter, um, I mean, gosh, he's been up to Grand Prairie so many times and every single time he comes, I sign up for all of his sessions. So I've probably seen him like, we, we were trying to count once and 
I've probably seen him like 75 times. And every single time I see him and learn from him through PD, through conversation, um, I learned something new. And it's funny because uh, a lot of his research, you know, once the students are thinking and once you have a thinking classroom, anything is a thinking task. And But I was so struck by the beauty and the wonder and the joy of these tasks that I was like, oh, but let's find the good ones and let's link them together and let's make a curriculum just out of the tasks. So he said to me before, he said, yeah, you can totally do that too. So that was kind of what made us um, put together our first problem solving resource. That's what inspired us was, was Peter and was our master's program. So basically we went... And we compiled all of the big, beautiful problems. I think Peter at one point called them unicorn problems. Um, I think now they're called non-curricular tasks in his book. And we were like, well, we all kind of have some experience in grade eight. And grade eight in Alberta is just a very nice year for curriculum. It's not a lot of new stuff. It's it's almost like you have this pause in the middle of the curriculum where you can kind of go back a little bit, but you can kind of explore other pieces just because there weren't as many outcomes and there weren't a lot of new outcomes. It was almost like a big review from K to seven. That's kind of how we approached it. So we took all of our problems and it was a team of us. And many of us had been in the master's program together. So we took all of our favorite experiences from that program and we put them and we linked them to curriculum. And it actually wasn't that hard because as we were going through it, we just kept finding more and more and more. And then we went and we went through dozens of textbooks and we were like, oh, some of these are just in the back chapters of the textbooks or some of these are the front parts of the textbooks, you know, the parts that we all kind of skip as we're learning how to teach because we don't think we have time for that. So we flipped it that way. And that's what we actually want to teach. Now, having said that, the group of us uh, were experienced teachers for the most part. So we had a good grasp of our curriculum and we had a good grasp of where we felt like we wanted to add these pieces. So our whole goal was to start with the problem and teach through the problems. So then we wanted to kind of like put our journey all in a book. So the first chunk of the book was, you know, what is a thinking classroom? It was that whole stop, read this first before you start. So, you know, you'll see Peter Lillydahl's Uh, name in there, reference to his research like hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, And we also have tasks from James Tanton in there as well that he had done with us as he had worked with our teachers. So once we had kind of done that first part of it, we decided, okay, we have some holes and we want to find more tasks to fill those pieces that we weren't um, feeling were being reached. Some of them didn't work as nicely. You know, we haven't really found a lot of big, beautiful problems for teaching integers, for example, or necessarily for teaching specific operations with fractions. We have found some that definitely broached the subject of fractions, but more in a general thinking kind of way. And then we kind of tagged in some little resources that we thought would kind of fill some of those pieces as well. So I don't know, that's kind of where it all got started. Uh, We ended up getting a grant from our ATA trust, and that's where we got to support to get sub-release time to get those teachers to collaborate. And then we had two other teachers that got a grant, and that's where the grade two and the grade three books came from as well. So everyone keeps asking, like, when are we going to do other grades? But I, (laughs) I I feel like people are doing the work all over the world, and we just need some way to put it together. So I'm not really sure. Yeah, you know, that those problem solving books that you're referencing have been a huge support for us uh, here in CCRCE and in Nova Scotia. Um, We actually were also fortunate to have Peter here in the fall and he, uh, he did come and spend a day with uh, about a hundred maybe of our teachers and regional staff. And so it was a great opportunity because we'd been working with his research for quite a while. And so to kind of have him come that, um, was really exciting for us as a region. And, and 
that's one question that we do get from teachers. Like, where do we find these tasks? Because we know Peter talks about like when students aren't thinking everything is difficult, but when students are thinking anything is possible. And so it was a really great opportunity for our teachers to hear that from him and then to be able to support them with a resource you know, that you have produced that's, that we were able to say, and here's how to get started and get your kids thinking so that when we do get to those areas of the curriculum that might be a little trickier, we have thinkers in our classrooms and we have created that culture and that climate. And like Peter says, we can point them at any task and they'll think their way through it, which is was super exciting for us because we've been working really hard to to kind of shift our mindset to that problem solving, starting with the problem here in CCRCE. Yeah. And I love it now too, because now teachers are working at the next level of it, which is that thin slicing. So, you know, how to get some of that productive practice in there and, you know, within the thinking classroom framework. So, you know, not everything needs to be a big, beautiful problem. Um, even though I love the big, beautiful problems, but that thin slicing kind of helps fill in those other pieces as well. You know, start with something a little bit more simple that they can solve on their own. And then every step is a little bit more complex or one piece of it changes. And then all of a sudden they've taught themselves exponent laws in one class period. Right. And it's magical when the kids are doing it. Alicia, do you want to just um, give us a little glimpse into your um, learning and education journey? Well, um, like I said before, it's been just opportunity after opportunity after opportunity in terms of the people that we've had up here teaching us. Um, But my big my big my journey kind of started in university. I wasn't going to be a math teacher. I was going to be a phys ed teacher. Um, And I had this teacher um, in my how to teach math class, just how my credits transferred over for my phys ed degree. I ended up being general science as a minor. And um, she taught me how to teach math, junior high and elementary. I think I had two courses with her. Her name was Norma Lachance. And it was the first time in my entire life that I saw that we could teach math differently, that we could teach it for understanding, that we could teach it through problem solving. Uh, so then I was really excited because I always um, was a strong math learner, but only in the rote way. You know, I could I could mimic my teacher. I could follow directions. I couldn't think outside the box. I couldn't problem solve. I asked for help a lot. Uh, you know, I struggled to understand why all the time, um, which really makes sense with some of Joe Bowler's research when she says that, you know, students really want to understand the why. And if they can't understand the why, then it's hard for them to to learn. Um, So that was kind of my turning point. So I graduated and I got a job up here in Grand Prairie and I started teaching phys ed, but I got a couple of math courses. And that's where I noticed the first couple of years as a brand new teacher that what I wanted to do and what I was doing was completely different. I noticed that uh, I was at the whiteboard and I was doing the math and that the kids were watching me do the math. And the engagement that I had with them or the questions that I was asking them were questions like, okay, we're, we're adding fractions. Uh, we don't have like denominators, so we have to change them. Okay, how do we do that? Okay, and then I'm talking through my process. A couple of them are shouting out random answers. So I'm like, oh yeah, they're following me. I got this. At one point, I turned and looked at them and I noticed that hardly anyone was even watching or paying attention. So this took me a couple of years. Um, you know, I'm. I'm trying to figure out my classroom management. I'm trying to figure out my curriculum. But I started to notice that kids weren't actually paying attention. Um, so that's why when, when Peter's research came out, now this is going to be a big jump here, 
it hit me so hard because I was like, that's exactly my experience as a teacher. And it was exactly my experiences as a learner. So anyway, so after that, I just tried to learn everything from everybody. I completely shifted my focus to math. Um, so then I started doing PD all like everywhere, everything that I could find, I would sign up for. So I learned a ton. Uh, we had a math consultant, Jerry Lorway in Grand Prairie here, and she was instrumental to the beginning of my journey. She was the one who ended up bringing Peter and James. She was our math, our math consultant here for, for the area. And, uh, and that's kind of where it all started. I went to some PD with Peter. Um, he came to our teachers' conventions. He came up to Grand Prairie to work with our teachers and our divisions. And then the master's program came to be. So that was the best learning experience, um, I feel, of my life. Um, every single class uh, was engaging, was deep, was reflective. Um, it was all face-to-face. -face. It was a weekend a month over two years. Um, and our, our cohort actually is still pretty close in terms of like looking back and, and, and loving the experience. Um, some of us keep in touch still as well. Uh, so much so that he came back and did another one um, just, just finished a couple of years ago now. So now we have 32 uh, people oh. in the area with their masters through, through Simon Fraser with Peter. So that was kind of where, where we we're at now. Um, you know, I'd love to one day do my PhD. I really want to study like the idea of those aha moments and the joy in math and how that links to to learning and to engagement and to also to math identity and confidence and and how we become learners. It's really weird to me that we think that we have to learn everything from K to 18. Right. We have to get everybody strong in all of the skills and we only have from kindergarten to 18 to do it. Kindergarten to grade 12. And it's so funny because I wasn't confident until an adult. Right. Like I didn't even know math could be fun or joyful or beautiful until I was in my mid 30s. And it was through these experiences with these professors from from Simon Fraser um, and beyond uh, that allowed me to do that. So, yeah, that's something that we've really noticed since we started to kind of reach out to people just like you to chat with is that the mathematics world is so big, but so small and connected. And that when we start to talk about our heroes, like there's so much overlap of who's out there really trying to, to make change. And, and kind of our goal is to take that kind of big idea change and really try to uh, take it back to our teachers and talk about that learning journey that, that it takes really to get there. And I listened to your story and it's so much, I was an English major <laughs> coming out of education and, uh, was fortunate enough to to get a job that had a math component and really really worked hard with our uh, with a math coach at the time Paul Dennis who who really mentored me and to help me see that conceptual understanding being such an important role and just like you like I knew that conceptual understanding was important but I was explaining the understanding to my students and and I thought I was there with that and it wasn't until I really reflected on like. I already passed grade eight. Like, why am I at the board doing grade eight math, <laughs> right? For these students, they need to do the math. And so I think that's a huge shift in our thinking. And it certainly, you know, um, it certainly is a journey of learning. Um, and I just, I know that we know that on your journey of learning, you just happen to also write a book. Uh, and so we're just kind of wondering if you'd speak to that about, again, those words that you say resonate, the power of imagination mathematics and the world around us and and providing that chance for readers to get a glimpse of the beauty and, and experience the joy and inspiration and the that inner mathematician that's in all of us but 
it seems like everybody doesn't get a chance to realize and and become and kind of blossom into. So, so what was the inspiration, you know, on that journey towards that book and the, and the goal of that book when you, when you decide to take that on? Well, funny enough, I had been thinking about it for a while, but it was during a session with Joe Bowler and I was sitting in a conference listening to her speak. And I don't know why, but I was like, I could write a book about the ideas that she so beautifully talks about. Um, so it just was something I had been thinking about for a while. Um, the Dragon Curve Fractal was something that was introduced to us during our master's um, by, I think it was by Dr. Natalie Sinclair. And it was the first time that I actually experienced in my own mind, uh, being a mathematician. And we had long strips of paper that were taped together and we had to fold them in half. And then we kind of opened them up and we looked at them and we're like, oh, okay, there we go. That's that's cool, a 90 degree angle. But then we had to fold them back up and then fold them half again the same way. And then you opened it and it kind of makes this like strip that has all these angles. And you, you always open the angles to 90 degrees. And then you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And we explored it. Um, and all of these magical things happen. Like you start to look at the patterns, you start to look at the number of folds, you start to look how the folds progress, you start to see these shapes emerge. And at some point, it looks like a dragon. And it's called the dragon curve. So I was like, why have we never learned about fractals? So then it gets even better. She was teaching us a technology course. So it's how to use computers to do the things that human beings can't do. I can't just keep folding a piece of paper forever, but a computer can. So then we had our, one of our assignments was be a mathematician, figure something out, make a computer do something that you're interested in. And what I did is I started with a straight line and I said, what if my straight line bumped up every time? And then every straight line bumped up and every straight line bumped up and every straight line bumped up. And I probably played around with it for like 50 hours. And finally, my husband was like, you got to stop. You got to stop. I think you're done. And it turned out after all of this practicing, these iterations on this computer, it made like half of a um, Kosh snowflake. And I'm not pronouncing that properly. I think it's, I, I don't know how to say it. If it's Cook snowflake, but it's spelled K-O-C-H. And all of a sudden I was like, well, I just discovered something that, I mean, it already exists, but I discovered it through playing with iterations on a computer. Um, it was amazing. So, and it, and we had it kind of all on this, uh, I think it was Geometer Sketchpad program. And so it kind of followed all of my thinking and it was all crazy. It reminded me of like the mathematicians on their whiteboards, just writing all their stuff down. And I was like, holy smokes, this paper folding turned me into a mathematician that I couldn't stop thinking about something that had happened to me. So that's what my impetus was for writing this book. I was like, well, how about if we introduce that to kids? So the whole idea is Ayana is walking down this road, finds a piece of paper, and then she folds the piece of paper and it makes a mountain. So she climbs the mountain and she folds the mountain again and it makes something else. And it kind of progresses until at the end, of course, there's a dragon because it's the dragon curve. And when you research the dragon curve or when you Google it or search for it online, there are so many beautiful things. People do art with it. People have... People have unfolded it to music. People have made iterations online. It's it's absolutely stunning. So that was my goal. How do I bring this big, beautiful math to people all over the world? Because I really like to do it with teachers and with students, but I'm like, there's other people out there. Maybe families want to explore with their kids. Maybe kids come up to this children's book and it's something that inspires their passion. It's so cool. I uh, I got it on Kindle today and uh, I, I built it with the book and I was so engaged and 
I thought in my head, instead of down the rabbit hole, like I, I'm, I'm down the, the dragon curve. And, and like you said, there's so many resources. So then I got on to your Mathagon recommendation and then James Tanton task and just learning through doing and, and talk about being in that, that state of flow that Peter, Peter talks about. Um, that's what, that's what learning math is exploring, looking for patterns um, being curious about what what you're finding. Um, so I yeah, I had a lot of fun. I know I talked to Michelle this afternoon um, saying like this would be a great um, PD opportunity to read it with teachers and have teachers and and educators build and reflect and and go down that dragging curve. And I was so lucky because I had that's exactly what I had um, well, I didn't have that exactly, but I had teachers who took it and tested it with kids. They took the pieces of paper. It works really well with drywall tape because drywall tape is a little bit stiffer. So it actually holds its folds better. So, and, and you can get a lot as long as a piece of seed like with drywall tape because it's in a huge roll of like 200 feet. Um, so that, it, that was kind of the fun too, right? It's like seeing kids explore it and being like, well, this isn't math, right? Because they don't think it's math. And all of a sudden it's this whole other world that's being opened. And like you said about Flowkirk, when you see kids in the flow of learning, that's why we do this job, right? Mm. And when we see teachers in the flow of learning when they're doing PD, that's why we do this job. Because if everybody could get into the flow of learning, then the learning wouldn't stop, right? Then people could look back fondly at their experiences in school and realize that that just helped them figure out who they are as learners in adulthood. And that's why our jobs are so fun. Absolutely. And I'm reflecting back, well, I'm reflecting on so many things right now, but back to your comment about you having those realizations and reflections as you were teaching in front of the class. I'm there, like I'm back when I was teaching grade eight and telling and telling and talking louder and trying to be enthusiastic. And it wasn't until um, I, was, I was at a PD in Calgary and we did a task. We did a task with cubes. And then we reflected on what we did collaboratively. And it was, yeah, it was the painted cube task. And I know, I know that probably, would that be your favorite task, Alicia? Oh, don't even get me started. Yes. Okay. I don't want to say yes, but I'll say yes. So the painted cube is one of my absolute favorites because that one was another one that we did during our masters. And that one was the first time that I ever connected algebra to something that I could hold in my hands. I thought algebra and patterns were numbers from tables of values. And I thought the only way you could get the next one was to continue the pattern or to do the trick where you figure out what the constant difference is, that becomes a numerical coefficient, you multiply it and you guess and check. Those are my only tools. And I was so confused because people are so passionate about algebra. And I'm like, what? Numbers, table values? I didn't know that those numbers came from somewhere. I didn't know that those numbers could mean something. So the painted cube, once again, mid-30s, holy smokes. You multiply by six because there's six sides, there's six faces on a cube. You multiply by 12 because there's 12 edges. But none of that was told to me because I didn't need it to, to be told to me because I explored it like you did through the cube. And all of a sudden, you're using a two as an exponent because you're talking about a square surface. You're using a three because you're talking about a three-dimensional object. Like, insane so that's you're absolutely right Kirk that is my like one of my number one favorites but I do want to share a couple others of my number one favorites with you 
moving squares is another one. So moving squares is when you get people and you put them in a grid and whatever number of people you have, you just choose the closest square number. So for example, you choose um, 16 because typically a class has 16. If you have a big class, you choose 25. If you have a, two classes together, you choose 36. And what you do is you get them in a, in a square grid. So four rows of, of four columns of people. And then the person in the back far right corner puts their hand up and the person diagonal to them in the front left corner, for example, steps out. Now I need to get that person with their hand up to the very front, but they can only move into an empty space. So the whole group has to work together to clear the way to get that person up to that front empty space. So A, it's a super engaging task because everyone has to work together. There's no risk to it because it's not like it really seems like math at that point. And they all work together and they talk and they argue and they come up with a solution. They get that person up to the front and then I say, huh, is that the best you can do? Is that the fewest number of steps that you can do it in? So now we're counting the steps because every time someone moves, that counts as a step. So you want it to be more efficient. You want it to be a better strategy. So then they do that a bunch of times. They figure out the, the answer. And then the question is, well, what if it was a different size grid? What if it wasn't four by four? So what mm -hmm. if it was three by three? Or what if it was five by five? So then they get put into random groups. Um, they get given a vertical surface and a whole bunch of cubes. Okay, but not cubes, sorry, a whole bunch of square tiles. The square tiles work the best. And then they, they explore it and then they figure it out. And the beauty of this, like all of my favorite problems, is that I've done it from grade three to university ed students. Mm -hmm. And it is engaging for every, every group of them. And then it turns out to be something that's low floor, high ceiling as well, because everyone can succeed to figure out the pattern. Everyone can find out what it increases by so they can predict for the next size or they can go the other way and predict for the smaller size. Um, but the beauty of the expression or the equation that comes from it actually comes from how the movements happen in the grid. And some people have described it as a staircase and then a waltz. And it's absolutely phenomenal. And it's really high ceiling because it does take a while to figure out some kind of equation that relates to the movements in, these, in this grid. But the best part about it is that multiple groups can come up with multiple equations. And then when it all simplifies, it gives you that equation that you would have gotten if you would have found the constant difference and used that as your numerical coefficient and multiplied it and then guessed and checked. But that actual, if you just did it that way, it's really hard to relate that equation to all of the things that were happening in the room. So that's another one of my absolutely favorite problems. Yeah, and, and so much in that, right? Like when we think about, we talk about when you spoke earlier about the unicorn tasks now being called non-curricular, like really there's nothing non-curricular <laughs> about those tasks except that it might not be the curricular unit or outcome or cluster that you're doing at the time but the the mathematical ideas that just come out of playing really playing with structure or really playing with you know different ideas and manipulating and seeing when one thing changes how does the other change it's it's just such a an eye-opening experience for students and for teachers like you said, not just get answers, not just the answer getting, but really building that understanding. And we're really fortunate to have Lisa Lunny Borden just 
down the road here at St. Evacs University and, and, you know, her talk about allowing kids to play with structure and hold it in their hands and to, to uncover or discover those patterns and relationships that you talk about. And then as a teacher, we just, we get to first sit back and enjoy that, right. And see that joy and see that confidence building and, and that identity as mathematicians being built in our learners. And then we just name it. Right. We just get to come in and kind of put some language to it so that they can can talk about it and and, you know, connect that experience to to mathematics is. Yeah, you're right. Going back to what you said earlier, like that's why we're in it. Right. Just to see that and be part of that. And whenever I work with teachers, I want them to be in it. I want them to feel it. So Peter does this so beautifully. Every time you work with Peter, you're working through the task, you're getting that experience. And once you as a learner are confident with a task, it's way easier to go and and do it in your classroom with your students. And it doesn't mean you need to know all the answers or all the strategies or all the ways to think about it, but you've experienced it. So you have some ideas of where it could go or maybe how you can provide hints or extensions with it. But I always say to my teachers, go and try it. If you enjoyed this task, go and try it with your kids and be open with them. Be like, I don't even know what's going to happen here. Because Mm -hmm. once you experience it, and you see your students experience it, I think it's life-changing. And I honestly think that is what inspires us to progress in our practice. And Peter always leaves a gift, and his gift is that task for you to work with your students. And I think I've been working with um, our university math methods courses students, and I just taught a group of them their third-year math education course and their fourth-year math education course And seeing the change and feeling the change and talking to them about the change from the beginning to the end. I mean, we're talking, that's, what was it? I think it was 26 three-hour sessions that I got to just mold and have fun and hopefully inspire. Um, I just think like when they come out and they're ready to start teaching, and I tell them this, don't expect it to be too much at the beginning. Like you're just going to be learning your curriculum and you're going to be going with the flow and you're going to be, but I said, but when you're ready, I hope you remember some of these things that caused you joy, some of those experiences that put you into the flow, um, because that's what I would hope that they would then get to extend to their students. Absolutely. And and there's so many tasks that I can think of now that um, I've experienced as a learner that we've um, that I've shared in a classroom or been part of. Um, just thinking about your book, that the front matter of your book, those um, like palindromes, um, unusual baker. Um, I wrote a bunch down here, a thousand and one pennies, four fours, such great tasks. And, and when we have students engage in these tasks, we see what mathematics is, don't we? We see the, we see that communication. We say, see the visualization. We see the problem solving. We see the reasoning, right? Yeah. And that's what math is. Right. You know, and I, I I agree with you like that. That's why we're here. And that's why our jobs are so much fun. I believe too, math, teaching math, for some reason, math, I believe is about social change and using Peter's work and with all these um, other researchers that are coming out with work around equity and accessibility um, and reaching all students. I feel like this is one way to address some of those pieces. Everyone has the right to learn. Everyone has the right to be curious. Everyone has the right to be set up so that they can succeed. 
right? So the random groups, the vertical surfaces, the thinking classroom, the hints and the extensions, the framework just works so beautifully to get kids to create this culture of learning. Um, and then to help the teachers respond to their students as individual learners, as well as a collective group of, of thinkers. And I mean, it's really weird when we think, you know, historically, or I don't know, because of society that we think that the teachers have to have all the answers and that the teachers have to be teaching. We learn so much more through our peers and through our experiences than we do through a PowerPoint that I'm showing you or that, or through me showing you my strategy. Right. So it's 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 engaging these students in these thinking classrooms that is going to to help them, you know, develop who they are as learners and and human beings. And James Tanton always says, um, oh, I can't remember what he said, but it was a good one. Uh, but it, it's about getting them engaged in doing the math. Give them something to think about. Right. And I know Peter says that a lot, too. Like they need something to think about because if you can't get them to think if there's nothing that's worthwhile. Like if there's nothing worthwhile thinking about, it's a lot harder. So like the locker, the locker problem as well, you know, like you're in a hallway and there's a hundred lockers and there's a hundred people and the first person goes and opens every single locker. And I always, you know, add sound, bang, 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 bang. And the second person goes and closes every second locker. And the third person goes and they're going to touch every third locker and they're going to change it. So if it's open, they're going to close it. If it's closed, they're going to open it. The fourth person touches every fourth locker and so on. The hundredth person is only going to touch the 100th locker. So if it's open, they close it. If it's closed, they open it. So your job, students, is to find out how many lockers are open at the end, which ones are open at the end, and why they are open. So I was working in a grade six classroom last, well, a couple of weeks ago now, mm -hmm. and didn't tell the teacher anything, just brought in this problem, brought in the double-sided counters with the, the red and the yellow, and gave them this task and they got to work. They were put in random groups, two or three. The grade six, they were just kind of at the beginning. So I did put them in groups of two or three, depending um, on how the random cards worked out. And uh, they, they worked on this task for about 65 minutes without stop. Grade six kids, 65 minutes without stop. And throughout the 65 minutes, they kept saying things like, oh, I'm just counting by multiples of three. or oh, are these what factors are? Then they're like referring to posters that they had made and they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Look at our factors. We've talked about factors. And the teacher was like, well, what? what? Like your, your experience here, this experience that they're having was directly related, of course, to the math that they had learned in their classroom. But because there's a real reason to wanting to know about factors to solve this problem, it all just became so magical. So even that connection um, for that teacher to experience it with her students, it's like, okay, we want more of this. Where do I get more? And I think that was the whole impetus of our, of our book collection too. It was like, how do we get these problems that we can easily share with teachers? Because that's the question. Where do we get more of these tasks? And now you can see there's groups all over Facebook. There's groups all over that are like collecting the tasks and making spreadsheets. It's absolutely amazing the collaboration that's happening. Oh, it's just phenomenal. And just just reflecting on that task, like I'm almost there. Um, and, and the importance of starting with that story piece, that oral language piece, a um, little bit of animation, a little bit of, you know, sound, that builds that curiosity piece. We form it as a story, having them involved, thinking about that prior knowledge piece. And, and then that math, 
that outcome is going to come out of that problem, Alicia, right? And, and talk about assessment, talk about assessment opportunities. Oh, absolutely. Right. Watching your kids do math is how you learn about what they know. You watch them do math. You ask them questions. But watching them do math, all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, you really do understand what a factor is because you just explained it to your partner. Right. And I appreciate that you said the story is so important because that 100 locker problem, I think, is going to be the my next book. Oh, and so that's cool. kind of where that that passion came from, too, because I was like, well, what if we could take all of our big, beautiful problems and then create them into a storybook? Amazing. Um, and and just back to I'm thinking so many tasks like I know could be turned into a book, right? Yeah, it's, you want to do it with me? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Let's all pick our favorites. Let's all write stories about them and then let's share them with the world. And it's so cool, like the, the story piece, I had my students make a little, we call them the task trailer, on Unusual Baker. And they made a little GIF of all the cake pieces, all the iterations. And then they used WeVideo and then did some audio over it. And that's their, that's their piece to share, right? And we've been trying to share that with, with other teachers and students. Yeah. And there's um, their assessment. And it's absolutely right. amazing what they can show. I have work from kids. So one of Peter's lines was, tell me the story of how you solved the problem. And so I use that as my major form of assessment whenever I'm doing tasks like this, whenever I'm doing big, beautiful problems. And I say, tell me the story of how you solved the painted cube. Tell me the story of how you solved the locker problem. And the things they come up with is absolutely amazing. And it doesn't all have to be super creative or colorful or with good images. One student wrote me a poem. Uh, kind of as a joke, actually, because he wanted to be a little snarky. And I read that poem every year to my my new students because it showed his understanding. And he was just trying to be funny. And, you know, because I made the comments, oh, it could be an interpretive dance if you want it to be. So he's like, well, I'm going to write a poem. Um, so then I had his younger brother a couple years later. And I was like, you remind your brother that I'm still reading his poem. Um, but the stuff they make, some of it is like artwork. Like some of it, it's like it's mathematical proofs from little kids right? Or junior high students or high school students. And they don't even really know that they're creating mathematical proofs at this point. But it, it's, it's, it's so amazing to see what they can talk about and explain when they're, when they're taught how and how to, and, and are given the chance, right? And it, that's the thing too, is it's so open and creative that so many of them, one, one kid made a scrapbook, one kid made a video, one kid made a, a storybook. And it was for the, um, the how many scores on the checkerboard problem. And for each page, she made a different size checkerboard, attached a string, had a little square attached, and that was the size of square you were trying to find. So you could work along with it as you were reading through her book to see how many squares you could find of that size. Like the amount of work and thinking and effort that goes into some of these things because they're given a chance to be creative and to communicate mathematically the way that works for them. You know, when Peter says, sometimes people will write kind of like a, a like a, I don't know he's 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 also taught LA, so he's really good at talking about like narratives, <laughs> right? Right. And some kids will just be very succinct and will hardly have any words. They'll have arrows and data and numbers and tables and charts. And then other kids will write you this beautiful long-winded story with pictures and illustrations. So right, you give the kids something to think about, and then you give them something to create and think about the learning that's happening there. So when you talk about that. It reminds me of the Annie Fetter video about 
Uh, I wonder what they'll notice if we just ask. And when we open up the space for students to, to discover and uncover and be creative and bring themselves to the mathematics, it's amazing. You know, they never cease to, to, to amaze us with what they'll bring. Like we get teachers to experience the experience as learners and, and, you know, they, they get that feeling and they buy in and then they bring that back to their students. And we provide that opportunity for students to uncover and discover and they take off with it. So I know another kind of big stakeholder that you have have talked about and worked really hard to bring into the conversation of changing uh, what mathematics classrooms look like is parents and families. So I wonder if, if you want to talk a little bit about your work bringing them into the conversation about changing mathematics class to really open up space for all different types of of, un, of discovery and, and creativity. Yeah, and that's definitely um, a challenge I think that we continue to uh, try to broach um, just because it's it's uncomfortable often for parents to see that math is being taught differently uh, than it was for them um, because they don't know how to react to it and they don't know how to support their kids with it. So a lot of that is that communication. Um, I found over the years, um, I've gotten a lot fewer questions. Uh, we've done some parent math nights over the years. One of the newest things that we've been doing is um, with Julia Robinson Math Festival. One of my good friends, Annette Rulo, who actually did her master's with us and also did her PhD, her PhD with, with Dr. Lily Dahl, um, is her job is to bring the joy. So this, this um, nonprofit organization's mission is to spread the joy of math throughout the world. So they'll come and they'll train teachers to put on these math festivals and, or they'll do math festivals online. And so we had one, she came and did one with um, my, my own child's school, as well as my, in the evening, we had my university students come and host it. And basically it's 13 stations and each station has one of these big, beautiful problems to explore um, that they've collected. And my daughter who doesn't right now think of herself as a, as a math person, um, she, for an hour and a half, explored this cup stacking problem that had to have this pattern. And you started with five cups and you had to stack all the cups a certain way and get them all in one pile. And once you mastered the pattern for five cups, you would add another cup. And she made it to like 19 cups by the end of the night. And so she wow. was doing all this cup stacking and she had this pattern and it was mirrored and it was absolutely amazing. I had no idea what she was doing or how she did it, but she sat at that table for an hour and a half exploring it. Um, so that I think is such an amazing way because then the parents are like, okay, we're seeing how this can be different and we're seeing how students can engage with math differently. So yeah, part of that. And then part of that is the my children's books as well. I'm hoping that that kind of gets out there so parents can see that there is beauty and joy in math and that math just isn't about, you know, adding and subtracting and multiplying and dividing or or being able to calculate quickly and that there's so much more to it that we can enjoy. And I would love that, you know, kids could bring this back to their parents, because I feel like a lot of us have missed that joy. And, you know, it would be neat to experience it as a as a parent reading or a, a parent or any adult um, reading the book, either with themselves or with, you know, someone else or a child. And just to see that joy, maybe through a different lens as well. I'm curious, Alicia, um, you had you had some experience as a as a high school math teacher. Um, as a VP in a high school, 
and a coach in a high school. Is that right? Uh, so I most of my teaching experience is junior high, seven, eight, nine. Um, okay. But I, I I was a VP and a coach, yeah, in in high school and junior high, um, and and elementary. But the VP was uh, eight to twelve. Oh, cool. This work starting with tasks, you know, this we see this in elementary, we see this in middle school, junior high. I don't think we see it enough in in high school. How how does that have to change in order to have our students experience experience this? Um, it's a good question. I think it's always a challenge. Um, I do think that high school teachers are open to experiencing some of these problems. So that's kind of how I try to do it. Um, I try to invite myself in or get invited in um, and model a problem and, you know, let them experience the flow and the joy that happens within it. And at the very least, you know, maybe now they have one task under their belt that they can feel like they can use it and connect to curriculum. Um, I feel like in high school, you know, the the stakes seem so high and the, the semesters seem so short and the outcomes seem so numerous that I think sometimes it's just that that worry and that pressure of getting through the curriculum. So my goal is to insert some of these big, beautiful pieces whenever I can um, so that they can, they can still provide these opportunities of joy, but also feel like it's hopefully not taking away from their curriculum. Um, eventually, I would love the thinking classroom model to be in all high schools and all subjects. Um, that's the other thing that I really try to promote is the idea of the random groups and the vertical surfaces. I mean, I mean, everything can be done in random groups at vertical surfaces, almost everything. And I really think that um, that teachers are starting to implement it into their high school classes. Um, it always seems like, you know, we, we give so much attention to elementary and junior high, and sometimes we just leave high school to their own devices, but I feel like they deserve just as much um, engagement, coaching, support. I feel like sometimes as coaches, we feel intimidated by the subject matter, but we have to remember they're the experts in the subject matter. So if we can provide them with some of these tasks to try in their classrooms, to some of these models, if we can provide them support and maybe implementing some random group vertical surface work, um, I think that they can run with it as well. And I know there's lots of high school groups, lots of high school teachers um, implementing Peter's research as well. And um, we just want to say thanks again. Uh, you're, you know, continue to inspire us with your tasks, uh, your dialogue through Twitter, uh, your novel, or sorry, your book. And uh, I really appreciate it. So thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I'm Kirk Keating. And I'm Michelle McCarran. And we're adding to the equation. equation.